pediatric suicide. These words don't seem to go together at all, and yet suicide is now the second leading cause of death in the United States for children ages 10 to 19 years old. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is here to help us understand this disturbing reality. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. John Ackerman, who currently serves as the Suicide Prevention Coordinator at the Center for Suicide Prevention and Research at Nationwide Children's Hospital, which I believe is located in central Ohio. Dr. Ackerman, welcome. Welcome, Pamela. Thanks for having me. Dr. Ackerman, you are in central Ohio, yes? Yes, we are uh, based out of Columbus. Okay. You have contributed to ongoing investigations at the Research Institute at Nationwide Children's regarding risk factors for adolescent suicide, and you also examine aspects of brain functioning that can influence teens' risk for suicidal behavior. I'm curious. I mean, this is a hard thing for anyone to think about, but particularly those who are parents. What brought you to this line of research? So I was uh, serving as a clinical psychologist for the first uh, seven years of my professional career at Nationwide Children's Hospital and working with a lot of young people who were struggling with things like depression and anxiety. And over time, it became increasingly obvious that many of these children were struggling not just with depression, but thoughts of wanting to end their life. It's something that we don't want to think about as parents all the time, but uh, it was something that if we were not asking these questions, these children were not telling us. And we, I was part of a study with our uh, research director, Dr. Jeff Bridge, and as part of that, we had to answer very, ask very direct questions about an individual's uh, risk for suicide, and we learned that um, a number of young people um, between about 10 to 15 percent of individuals um, in the high school years are considering this. So we knew that we needed to do more instead of just waiting for young people to come to us. So our center was developed about three and a half years ago. And uh, our our mission is to make sure we are uh, identifying and supporting kids who are at risk for suicide. When we say pediatric suicide, what ages are you referring to? I Typically under the age of 19, uh, so really the, the, uh, unfortunately we, we do talk about some elementary schools, but uh, really uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers' uh, levels of uh, suicidal thinking and behavior do tend to increase in early high school years. So from our perspective, we deal with the whole spectrum, but we want to have these conversations at, at a young age uh, before these uh, concerning behaviors occur. So really, uh, the conversation should be had uh, as early as elementary school and certainly by middle school. We need to be having conversations and giving our young people tools. Well, again, I know that there are parents who are listening who are saying, I don't want to have that conversation with my child. What does my child have to be sad about, depressed about, you name it? What do you say to those parents who really can't imagine that this has anything to do with them or their child? Yeah, I would say we, we get that uh, quite often, perhaps a little bit less so recently over the past couple of years as people realize the scope of this issue is broad and it affects uh, nearly all families in some way. So um, it's still a, a very rare event for a young person to take their life, and that's fortunate, but it's not particularly rare for a young person to be 
um, distressed enough to consider ending their life. So what we want families to know is one of the best things you could possibly do would be have a very direct conversation and have lots of emotional check-ins. So what I mean by that is uh, you want to find those opportunities, whether it's in car rides, whether it's the dinner table, uh, times when you can sit down directly and ask a young person, especially if they're showing some of the warning signs uh, that, that, um, you know, ask them, have you have you been down? It seems like you're in pain. Have you had thoughts about killing yourself? Have you considered suicide? And it can be jarring to use those words and it can be very uncomfortable, but we spend a lot of time with, with parents uh, supporting them and being able to ask something as direct as that, because research shows that a, that doesn't put the idea in their mind. It's not distressing to a young person to be asked that question. And it can be one of the most relieving things that a young person can hear when they have been struggling with this in silence. And finally, an adult who they trust is asking them that question. And uh, what we know is they will answer yes or maybe or sometimes if you if you ask them that question. And, and we need to give adults the tools to ask that question and, and know how to respond. So that's a lot of what we do. So that's certainly a very different viewpoint uh, for parents and comforting in some way that if they do ask their child, their their child may actually be relieved to know that someone cares and that someone is paying attention. Absolutely. And we have, um, we have at this point screened over 25,000 kids. And I can tell you that we have not put the idea of suicide into someone's mind that was not previously struggling with suicidal thoughts. And we, we've really uh, been able to support, get support for um, for hundreds of kids who had never told anyone, had never disclosed this. And it's a lot better for a young person to have that conversation than to wait uh, months and what we know is often years and years without telling anyone because of the shame and stigma around this topic. So if the adults can model the idea that it's okay to talk about this, it's okay to, to be distressed and overwhelmed and even not feel like being alive without that being some sort of, um, you know, horrible, shameful experience, then then we can get kids help. There are treatments that work. There are strategies that we know we can reduce that suicide risk. So, but first we have to identify those kids. And that comes from that conversation um, as simple as asking, have you ever thought about killing yourself? You heard me say at the very beginning that suicide is the second leading cause of death. Uh, in the United States for children ages 10 to 19. Would you agree or disagree with that statistic? Uh, Yeah, that's pretty objective uh, and factual. We are uh, certainly seeing an increase in uh, suicide rates among all age groups, but we're particularly concerned about young people. Uh, We know that suicides among 10 to 14-year-old girls, for example, has tripled in the past 15 years. Uh, We know that young people overall are, are... are engaging in suicidal behavior more frequently from like emergency department visits from anonymous surveys. We know that this is happening. So there's an increased urgency both to do research to understand why, um, which we, we are not well, um, suited to answer right now without much more research. And, uh, we also need to be able to give our kids and families the tools to, to deal with this. So it's, it's pretty objective. We, we unfortunately lose about 2000 young people, per year to suicide, which the way we also think about that is if it's, it's almost like having um, a 9-11 every 18 months, except it's one that occurs every single 18 months. And it's one of the few public health issues that shows 
um, very little improvement um, in the past few decades, whereas things like car accidents and other public health issues have been, uh, we, we've seen a lot of reduction. And in fact, middle schoolers are now more at risk of dying from suicide than uh, of a car accident. So it's, it's something we need to take a much harder look at and be more comfortable talking about this uncomfortable topic. So it sounds like this is not a new trend. This is uh, almost a static trend that isn't going the, in the direction that you would like for it to go. Absolutely. Yes, I think there were some of the, I know the Center for Disease Control put out a report and it, it made uh, made headlines, but within the suicide prevention community, um, it's actually surprising there haven't been more headlines about this because we've known about this for um, you know many, many years and, and we need a more concerted effort from the community. Uh, I'd also say it, it needs to be taken from a public health perspective because um, I, uh, there are there are we know there's about 1.3 million youths who consider um, suicide each year, and and we we don't have the workforce to deal with it. We need to make sure our our faith-based communities, our youth-serving organizations, the adults who work closely with youth as mentors are trained in knowing what to look for and how to get kids help. So it, it's got to be a got to be a community effort. It's got to be a, um, a, a partnership that's, um, that's forged between lots of different groups and not just uh, every child who is struggling with depression or suicidality has to go straight to our emergency rooms. That would not be effective either. We like to look at uh, different types of changes in a few areas. So um, we certainly see changes in mood, um, in how a, a young person is feeling. Uh, and this can be uh, increased sadness, uh, irritability, uh, uh, things like uh, not not feeling like they have any energy or or, um, or or enjoying the things that they used to love to do. Uh, we also see some behavior changes like withdrawing from others, uh, letting other people uh, know that they want to say goodbye. They're expressing unbearable emotional pain or possibly giving away prized possessions. Um, and then also how they think about themselves or other people can change a lot. So they're feeling like a burden to others. They're feeling worthless. They no longer feel like they have anything to offer the world. And what that contributes to is a sense that uh, actually, if they weren't alive, they would be doing everyone else a favor. So one of the myths that's out there is that uh, individuals who are, uh, are suicidal or who want to take their own lives are being highly selfish. And what we know from, um, from a treatment perspective is most of these young people actually feel like um, they don't have anything uh, to live for and that they, would, they are actually causing problems for everyone else. And even though this is a, a, a way their mind has been um, you know, affected by the illness of depression, uh, we know that those are some of the things that stem from it. Um, we're particularly concerned when a when a young person starts talking to other people uh, in person or online about uh, the death or wanting to end their life, um, and, and when they're searching for ways to end their life. So if they're looking for um, medications or searching for things online, um, those are those are warning signs uh, that we need to take very seriously. Um, and then um, and then just sort of expressing the sense of a, of being a being a burden to everyone else, so being hopeless and um, and finding ways to um, finding ways to end their life are things we need to respond immediately to. Um, get professional help. Um, call nine one. Take them to the the emergency room if we're seeing some of these um, warning signs. You um, use the term depression 
is it the case that if a child is depressed, is depressed, uh, they are at higher risk for suicide? Or is it the case that if they're depressed, a parent needs to immediately worry that suicide is around the corner? Certainly, depression is one of the more significant risk factors for uh, suicidal thinking. Uh, but it's also worth noting that not every child who is depressed is also suicidal. That's why part of the uh, this equation is asking very direct questions and understanding that if a person is, is sad, withdrawn, stopping doing things, those are symptoms of depression. But it's really when a person starts to uh, consider ending their life and, and no longer feels like, uh, you know, they're dealing with such excruciating emotional pain that being no longer being alive would be preferable to uh, remaining alive. That's when uh, we're, we're more concerned about suicidal thinking. So we always check in as a, as a clinician. If a person is depressed, I'm, I'm making sure that every single time I see the young person, I'm asking a direct question about suicide, but it doesn't mean that uh, every person with depression is um, uh, suicidal. It also, we're learning that um, you can you can have a, a degree of suicide risk or you can experience suicidal behavior and not be depressed either. So most individuals with, with suicidal, uh, suicidal thoughts and behavior are depressed, but some uh, for other reasons, whether it's increased substance use, impulsivity and and uh, other health risk factors, uh, suicide could be an option for those individuals, too. So we try to take the approach that uh, both mental health factors and suicide don't discriminate that much. So the best thing we can do is actually uh, ask very direct questions um, and, and have those conversations. And I have two, uh, two young girls of my own, and, and that will be part of the equation as they're as they're getting a little bit older, uh, really by the age of eight and nine that we'll, we'll check in and we'll have a conversation and they'll be able to tell me really clearly if I've given them the emotional language to do, to do that, that they are or are not um, dealing with these thoughts and then we can be more comfortable moving forward. You just said by the age of eight or nine. So I know there are some heads sort of twisting around eight or mm-hmm. nine seems so young to think about ending your life. It absolutely does, uh, and I, I wish we uh, weren't talking about these age ranges, uh, but that is what we are seeing um, in terms of uh, the, the kids who sometimes need treatment. And I would, and again, this is preventative. It does not mean that the majority of eight or nine-year-olds uh, are struggling with uh, thoughts of suicide, but we know that there's a, you know, that there's a small percentage who do, so we'd, we'd rather have that conversation that we know won't um, increase the risk or cause a lot of distress at this age and then, um, and then, you know, kind of move forward if it is. So, um, that's, that's really our, our, our set of decisions. And again, that's also, if a person has been showing these warning signs, we're going to proactively have these, these conversations as well. So, um, and what we need to do, I think from a hospital perspective and, and knowing that this is uncomfortable is give people very concrete ways of talking about this and asking questions. So it doesn't seem, quite so uncomfortable. Um, and again, it, it's building up to it. It's checking in and saying, uh, I know that you've been struggling or this is something that we know goes on in schools. Can you tell me about whether any of your friends have talked about wanting to hurt themselves or if anyone has even said they don't want to be alive anymore? And that conversation shifts a little bit from the youngest ages to the older, but um, it can be said. And again, we've um, we've done it a lot with um, late elementary school, middle schools, and high schools, and they tolerate those conversations really well, especially if the adults are okay having those conversations. Are there gender differences? Uh, there are. There's actually a, 
they call it gender paradox with suicidal behavior in that we know uh, young girls are uh, about three times more likely to attempt suicide um, and to have, and, and uh, they're more likely to have suicidal thoughts, but boys actually die by suicide about four times more frequently. And that is because they often use methods of uh, wanting to end their life that are a lot more lethal. Um, and so uh, things like firearms are, are ways that um, uh, unfortunately uh, young people don't survive from. So we, uh, we need to make sure that we are restricting access to things that can really harm people when, when someone is a, in an emotional crisis, because that is a huge risk factor. Uh, aren't those numbers essentially the same for adult men and women as well? It is. Yep, yeah, that's, a, that's a very good point. There, there is actually isn't a giant change in that that sort of reversed um, uh, relationship between suicide attempts and and deaths for for males and females. So, it, it, I think there are probably some cultural factors in there. But even that when you look at other cultures, it tends to be a higher rate of. Um, of male deaths as well. And uh, there's some, there's some theories that suggest males are more impulsive and aggressive as well. Um, there's not as much support for the idea that, um, males simply want to die more or, or that females are just making a, a gesture or a cry for attention. We don't really, uh, subscribe to that. It's just the, the method and that a person is using is either more likely to end someone's life or not. And, uh, we would, hope that we can reduce the amount of access to things that can end a person's life because in, in no way is that a, um, a, a result that we're looking for regardless of gender. What about racial differences? We are beginning to learn a bit more about racial differences um, in, in the United States and as well as in other cultures, but uh, historically um, rates of suicide have been highest among uh, Native Americans and uh, Alaskan Pacific Islanders um, as, a, as a group. And then in more, um, in more urban settings and in other U.S. communities, uh, we know that um, African-American youth are, are typically across the entire range of childhood at lower risk than Caucasian uh, white Americans. But um, there's actually was a study that came out from um, our research team that indicated that for uh, kids under the age of uh, under the age of 12, um, black youth are actually twice as more likely to take their own life uh, than white youth. And then in teenage years, that completely reverses where white youth are much more likely uh, to die by suicide than uh, African-American youth. So we actually don't have a good understanding of the exact mechanisms of that or kind of, uh, potentially considering the, the idea of early trauma and, uh, and community factors, but that is not something we have a clear answer to, but we do know this. That's a, that's a trend that sort of surprised us, but it's something we need to pay attention to to support uh, all youth well, you, you know, I mean, the, the numbers are staggering, period, regardless of the gender or the the race. But when you say that um, the suicide risk for um, young African-American children, boys between the age of 5 and 11, is higher. I mean, again, the, the age ranges are just staggering when you really think about it. Yeah, no one, no one wants to consider the idea of a young person being in such distress that um, being being alive is not their best option. And so I think we need to really, uh, as parents, as adults, we need to figure out a way to um, rise above that 
that hurdle and understand that this is not going away and, and we need to we need to be able to have that conversation and just sit with the thought that this does happen and what can we start to do about it and we've been slow in getting to that part of what can we do about it we need everyone on board to start thinking about that um, and not just when there's a tragedy we need to proactively address our schools and communities so that's a lot about what we do in our school our school programs we teach the all the adults um, the teachers the administration the people who serve lunch the bus drivers the coaches we need everyone to be um, knowing what to look out for and how to respond should that arise knowing that most kids um, will not struggle with this but enough will that every adult needs to know and then the kids themselves who are more likely to tell other kids than they are adults need to know that this isn't something we keep secret we need to make sure that we can uh, talk to trusted adults and get su support for uh, for other people we use like an analogy uh, if you're uh, if your friend sitting next to you was on fire and told you, uh, no, no, I'm good. I, I don't need you to tell anyone. Please keep this just between you and I. Uh, we would never let that fly. But with suicide and with this emotional component, it's still, since we can't observe it, we don't respond with the same intensity or the same urgency. And, and lots of kids who could get help don't get help. So we are trying to change that culture. Uh, and it's, we actually see it happening in central Ohio. We have um, we've supported uh, over 100 schools now, and we've really seen some changes in the way schools are approaching this and the way that people are comfortable really engaging um, in this dialogue. So we just want to keep pushing that forward and then making sure other communities, other states are, are following suit. What's your sense of the impact of suicide I'll say, put the word games in quotes, um, on the internet that target children. Have you looked into the prevalence and the impact of that? We have. I'm, I'm part of a group um, at the American Association of Suicidology, um, and it's actually based in D.C., uh, that um, we, we look at some of these media trends, uh, and most of them, uh, to be honest, in, including the Blue Whale game and Momo and a few other ones, tend to be hoaxes. They don't have a, a degree of uh, verifiability, and and what we're actually worried about is sometimes when they uh, when they start um, going viral and people are sharing all this information, when there's not a lot of credence behind it, uh, we could actually be creating something that wasn't there to begin with. Okay. Uh, so uh, and and that when when suicide is discussed in a really sensationalized way, when we're talking about methods and like shock value stories. We actually know that can increase suicidal behavior among young people, um, especially. So we want to we want to kind of toe that line between giving families not information and knowledge and 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 ways of responding to risk without creating a an alarmist uh, approach to this topic. Um, so those those games uh, are something that I mean they, they tend to sort of have this urban myth quality to them where some information will be given to a child and then some mystery person on the other line will end up, you know, leading them through this elaborate process and, and they end up needing to, you know, like end their life at the very end or something like that, that we don't have any credible information that they exist. So we try to give people real proactive tools and the same, the same strategies would apply. If you think your child is involved in something like that, if it did exist, you would, you would want to acknowledge what they're going through give them more coping strategies, um, share with them that there are supports for, for people who are struggling with depression and suicide risk, and then uh, work with a professional if, if they're at a point where their life is being affected in, in big ways by, 
these mental health issues. Okay. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. We will return with Dr. John Ackerman in just a moment. Dr. Ackerman, so many adults, if not children, certainly teenagers, are glued to the news in, I don't know, sometimes ways that perhaps aren't all that useful. Are there Mm -hmm. certain kinds of events that parents should be, that adults, period, should be mindful of uh, in terms of children's thoughts about suicide? For example, you know, if someone, if, if a known person commits suicide or if there's a mass shooting somewhere, are, are those the kinds of things that might cause children to think about suicide more seriously? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably two issues in that question. And the first is that uh, I think the overall exposure that our young people have to, to death and violence is, is pretty high. Um, and it doesn't mean that one incident will always uh, contribute to a, a a person's specific behavior, um, but we do know that exposure to uh, suicide, in particular, can lead to something uh, that we call uh, suicide contagion, and that's where uh, being aware of a suicide, especially if it's talked about in a really sensationalistic, uh, stigmatizing way or graphic way, that actually um, has been shown at a at a population level to increase suicide risk. So we're not great at predicting who is going to be at risk, but we do know that vulnerable individuals, uh, those who are already struggling with mental health issues or those who identify strongly with the person uh, who died, so like a celebrity, um, someone they can really, uh, who they've looked up to, uh, if that person dies by suicide and it's plastered all over the uh, TV and newspaper, we know that uh, that suicide contagion effect can occur and um, and young people especially are at risk. So, um, so adolescents have been shown uh, to to really respond to these uh, suicide deaths in a uh, in a way that's concerning. So we want to make sure that uh, we're being thoughtful about how we report about suicide. We worked with our um, our state's Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services to develop guidelines. Um, they're called the Ohio Suicide Reporting Guidelines, and we um, we really made sure that we gave people information about how journalists had to had to report on suicide effectively. That sort of did not sensationalize things, but was were able to talk about suicide in a really helpful way. Our goal is not to censor the discussion of suicide, but really to give people the tools to have conversations in a productive way and always use resources, always let people know there's crisis support out there. And then the language pieces is really important. So um, if you're minimizing the distress of a person or, or sort of shaming them as you're telling the story or focusing on their death instead of their life, that can be really unhelpful. Um, We do know, I'll also add that uh, all reporting is, is not unhelpful. Uh, If you're talking about people who have struggled with suicide or mental health struggles and you're talking about how they cope with it and how they how they have really overcome and and dealt with this uh, chronic mental health issue at times you can actually give people a lot of um, a good model of someone who's done this well and effectively and it's not all rainbows and unicorns but it can be done and there are people you can look up to in in a positive way. 
Dr. Ackerman, how does one find out more about what you're doing or what uh, the hospital is doing in this area? Um, we're definitely trying to get uh, mental health information and su- suicide prevention specific information out there. So um, one option is to go to um, uh, nationwidechildrens.org uh, forward slash suicide dash prevention. Um, you can also um, you can also look up um, other other resources such as the uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline uh, Crisis Text Line. You can text um, START to seven four one seven four one and get support if you're ever struggling with suicidal uh, ideation. There's also the websites for the American Association of Suicidology or the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention are often uh, great resources with tons of opportunities to uh, to get support and to learn more about this really important topic. So by no stretch does someone listening need to feel that they are alone in their pursuit for information. There's lots of support, lots of knowledge available. Absolutely. And you can also even email us directly at uh, suicideprevention at nationwidechildrens.org. And we're happy to field questions um, and support people in thinking about this, uh, both with young people um, and schools and other, other, other topics like that. Wonderful. Dr. John Ackerman uh, with Nationwide Children's Hospital in Central Ohio, thank you very much for joining us today and giving us this really important information. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And folks, thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Be sure you go to the mindtalk.org homepage and sign up for our free weekly giveaway as well as uh, becoming a member of the Mind Talk family. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Mm-hmm.